Our speaker today is Stephen Grant, a Boston native educated at Amherst College, Middlebury, and the University of Massachusetts, where he received his doctorate in education before going on to diplomatic service as an education officer with USAID in Egypt, Guinea, Indonesia, and elsewhere. Dr. Grant is currently a senior fellow at the Association for Diplomatic Studies and Training in Arlington, Virginia. An accomplished and deservedly celebrated author, Dr. Grant will be speaking to us today about his most recent book, Collecting Shakespeare, The Story of Henry and Emily Folger, a subject inspired, and this is heartening for those of us who work at cultural institutions, by a very good tour given by a curator that he took at the Folger Shakespeare Library. <laughs> this compelling book was recently named a finalist for the Theater Library Association's prestigious 2014 George Friedley Memorial Award. I think we're about to hear why it deserved those accolades. Please join me in welcoming Stephen Grant to the Boston Athenaeum. Thank you very much, Lizzie. Very happy to return to Boston. A biographer strives to capture or to resurrect a life. We are nosy people. We are snoopers by trade. I wrote a dual biography, the story of a quiet couple who lived in Brooklyn during the Gilded Age. Henry Folger and Emily Jordan Folger were born in the 1850s and died in the 1930s. They did not leave descendants they left the largest Shakespeare collection in the world, two blocks from the U.S. Capitol. Clad in a white shirt with lace collar, Henry is grasping in both hands a book, spine up. He is already a budding bibliophile. <laughs> he is holding the first of 92,000 books he will acquire in his lifetime. Emily, his bride-to-be, is somewhat taken aback. <laughs> Henry, we will collect 92,000 books? Has a couple ever done that before? Alone, they figured out how to develop a prodigious book collecting machine. Having no children, they poured their love into their collecting. Elected president for life of her Vassar class of 16 students in 1879, Emily loved English and the theater, 
but her favorite subject was astronomy. Even though the sun struggled to come into the Vassar dorm rooms where you had dark furniture, dark full-length clothes, we can make out a seated student, two seated students, one reading, one writing. You can see where the gas lamps were fixed. Are there any Vassar alums in the hall? I don't think so. Well, this is Main Hall. Vassar possessed the third largest telescope in the country due to the renown of the first professor whom Matthew Vassar hired, Mariah Mitchell. Mariah Mitchell is here, hovering over her dominion. And here, the dominion is used for the one hour of compulsory daily physical exercise, in this case, croquet. And there are some light-colored dresses as well. Mariah Mitchell is not in drag. <laughs> she was raised in a Quaker household, like one half of the population on Nantucket Island. When Mariah Mitchell died, Emily took it upon herself to create a memorial fund for her beloved professor. Folgers have lived on Nantucket for 350 years. Mariah Mitchell and Henry Folger were cousins. How many of you have been to the Whaling Museum on Nantucket? More than went to Vassar. <laughs> the Whaling Museum on Nantucket is also called the Peter Folger Museum. No spelling variant the Folger with a U. Peter Folger immigrated to the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1635, part of the great Puritan migration from East Anglia, England. He married Mary Morrill, whom he met on board. They had nine children, the last of whom they named Abaya, A-B-I-A-H. Baya married a Boston soap maker, Josiah Franklin. They had a son who was in this room. Look around. Their son was Ben Franklin. Ben was proud to claim a Folger as a mother. Henry Folger was proud of the family connection to Franklin. Henry said, and I quote, Had I not collected Shakespeareana, I would have collected 
Franklin, Niana. <laughs> I bet most of you know this nearby bronze sign indicating the old granary burial ground. Under this stone obelisk gravestone marked Franklin, in the center of the cemetery lie Abiah and Josiah Franklin. Behind it, in this picture, you see the rear facade of the Boston Athenaeum. So we have a Baya Folger who is maybe 500 feet away. Who knew that the Folger story was so close? <laughs> Before we leave Nantucket, let's recall that James A. Folger, Henry's uncle, left the island when the whaling trade plummeted, and he sought his fortune in San Francisco in the late 1840s. He found only a little gold, but founded Folger Coffee. While Emily was making the most of her Vassar education, 85 miles east, Henry was loving his four years at Amherst. Canes and hats were in vogue for the class of 1879. This is a subset of students who prepared at Adelphi Academy in Brooklyn. Henry is top center. Neither Jordan nor Folger parents attended college. Emily and Henry both attained Phi Beta Kappa keys. They both earned master's degrees. Amherst awarded each an honorary doctorate. To Henry's left is, and the name is written up here, C.M. Pratt, Charles Millard Pratt whose father was the largest oil refiner in the country. This is the same man, the father that is, who founded Pratt Institute. We are now in 1885. Henry and Emily are married. Henry has started to grow a mustache. Emily is sitting with her elbow in the lap of Mary Morris, the bride of Charles M. Pratt. Charles Pratt and Henry Folger were roommates for four years. Mary and Emily were at Vassar together. And by 1885, Charlie and Henry were already ensconced in their career in the petroleum industry, because one week after graduation from Amherst, they were working for the Pratt Oil Works uh, in Manhattan. Who is this gentleman? This is John D. Rockefeller, 
who founded Standard Oil of Ohio in 1870 and two years later moved to New York where in a secret deal he bought out Charles Pratt. This is the Standard Oil Company delegation in 1908 returning to 26 Broadway called the Tower of Secrecy <laughs> on Manhattan after hearings in the case of Standard Oil Company of New Jersey versus the United States where the Supreme Court after a four-year period condemned Standard Oil for its monopolistic practices and split it into 34 companies. In the middle you see a gloomy John D. Behind him two overworked attorneys who were probably up all night preparing for the defense. And if you look on the right, look at the elated expression on the faces of the messenger boys that had an opportunity to leave the Tower of Secrecy for a while. Then to the left, you see someone who is striding. He doesn't have an overcoat on. He doesn't seem gloomy. He doesn't seem elated. He's somewhere in between, but he looks relaxed. He has something under his left arm, which are probably the stenographic trial records. That is Henry Folger, who now has grown a beard. You've seen him clean-shaven with a mustache and now with a beard. He was literally John Dee's right-hand man. He had a legal degree from Columbia. He did not serve in the legal department, but he served as an informal legal counsel to Rockefeller, which was a very nice relationship for both. This check, this check was written in 1918. Henry is now president of Standard Oil Company of New York, which later became Mobile Oil. He has worked his way up from being a statistical clerk. He worked 49 years for Standard Oil. Why would I be showing you a check? It's pretty amazing that I was able to find a check signed H.C. Folger. Can you see who, whom it was written to? It was written to John D. Rockefeller. Why would Henry be writing a check to make the richest man in the world richer? It's $53,000 in 1918, which today would be $800,000. Well, think about it. When you're assembling a collection of Shakespeare rarities, you don't have time to do the work yourself when you have a day job, so you hire commission agents to represent you at auctions. And when you win something, you have to pay for it. And Folger, buying his 92,000 books, even though he earned his salary well and he invested in 
Standard Oil, had nice dividend checks. He led a life of short-term debt. He was always looking for money to borrow, to buy something, and then to pay it back. Now, I will spare you the other 10,000 checks that he left behind. I have scrutinized them all, and I'm the only person to have done that because the library at the Folger keeps records of who has looked at what items. And for a biographer, these archival boxes in the underground vault at the Folger are a gold mine. Because think of it, the checkbook is an autobiography. It reveals where your values lie. You all recognize the iconic highbrow of William Shakespeare. This is the title page of the first folio, the 1623 publication in London that contains 36 Shakespeare plays. The Folger Library possesses 82 copies of this book, all different in some respect. It was Henry's obsession to collect more than anyone else. The word folio is a printer's term indicating the size of the sheet of paper. It's roughly encyclopedia size. If you take a folio sheet and fold it in half, then you have a quarto, which is the size in which Shakespeare's individual plays were printed. You are looking on the right at my laptop, which I keep in the Folger Library reading room, and next to it is an original Shakespeare folio in modern binding. Folger saved ticket stubs, not only checks. He had the opportunity to listen to one of the last public lectures by Ralph Waldo Emerson in May of 1879, who spoke in College Hall at Amherst. The subject of his address was not Shakespeare, but Henry sat in seat 33A, and he was struck by the eloquent oratory which sent him to read what Emerson had written about Shakespeare. Some people have claimed that listening to Emerson suddenly convinced young Henry to devote his life to Shakespeare. If you visit the Folger Library and go to the Founder's Room in a glass case on the left, you will see this ticket. But, of course, it was more complicated than that. Many people ask, why Shakespeare? Why did they collect Shakespeare? I quote Henry, I started collecting Shakespeare, expecting that it would prove an agreeable recreation. It soon became a delightful hobby. But of late, I find it a rather tyrannical master. If you are a collector, you might have sympathy for the latter feeling. This sounds like a collection out of control. Emily had a different version of why Shakespeare. 
Emily wrote that while at Amherst, Henry wrote an essay in a contest, and it was a Shakespeare contest, and he lost. And Emily said, he went into Shakespeare out of pique. All the mailing labels are in the collection, as well as all the invoices. Henry corresponded with 600 booksellers, 150 in London alone. This oil painting of Emily in Vassar Pink by British painter laureate Frank Salisbury hangs in the Folger Library reading room. In her hand is a fan from Shakespeare's era depicting a scene from Henry V. Emily kept a theater journal noting details about the 100 Shakespeare performances she attended. She read book auction catalogs marking a question mark in pencil to show Henry after he returned from his day job. Henry spent half the night putting together bid lists, keeping track of all the Shakespeare purchases in a card catalog was Emily's responsibility. She developed writer's cramp. Henry is in his Amherst purple in this twin portrait. Salisbury loved painting subjects in academic robes. He had apprenticed in a stained glass window factory and loved colors. He threw up his arms in dismay if a subject entered his studio in a dark suit. Henry, wrapped up in a newspaper and carried on the subway from Brooklyn, the book he is holding in his hands. It's a pirated 1619 edition of Shakespeare called the Pavier Quartos. Monday mornings at 10, Henry had a golf date with his boss, Don D. At five foot four, 115 pounds, Folger was not powerful on the fairway, but he was deadly on the green, and that's where you make most of your shots. He was holding in his hand a Schenectady putter, which was later outlawed by Bobby Jones. <laughs> Have you ever heard of Rockefeller giving out shiny new dimes? Yes, I see some heads. His valet apparently would stuff his pockets with nickels and dimes, and when Rockefeller went out, he would give them to people that he knew, that he didn't know, and he would give them to Henry Folger when he sunk a 14-foot putt. When Henry died, in his top bureau drawer were all these dimes. Emily decided that she would make a watch band out of them. So this watch band is in the Folger Library underground vault, and I've looked closely at it. All of the dimes are 1920 mercury dimes.
This is the Brooklyn Brownstone in Bedford-Stuyvesant, where the Folgers rented, and they rented their furniture. I assume they didn't want to tie up their funds in real estate. And in the basement is where they unpacked all of their crates and where they where Emily wrote down the quality of each item for the card catalog before they were repacked and sent to storage warehouses and bank vaults. The largest vault was the one that he used at Standard Oil. The Folgers were very parsimonious in the time that they would spend with their family because they were unilaterally devoted to Shakespeare. They said, okay, family, we'll see you twice this year. Thanksgiving and New Year's. One was for Emily's side of the family, one was for Henry's side of the family. Now we've moved from Bedford-Stuyvesant, Brooklyn, to Washington, D.C. Do you see the Capitol building? So what you are looking at are 14 row houses called Grant's Row, but no relation to me. And these 14 row houses were bought up by the Folgers in secret deals. The Folger name didn't appear anywhere, but the Folgers had decided this is where they wanted to build the library to house their Shakespeare collection. And there you see Grant's Row is no longer there. What you do see is the Library of Congress. Now it's known as the Jefferson Building because it has two other buildings, but this was the only building of the Library of Congress that the Folgers knew. And the two libraries are perfectly complementary. You have the Library of Congress, which is public and general. You have the Folger Library, which is private and specialized. This is the French-born architect of the Folger Shakespeare Library. He was professor of design at Penn. His name is Paul-Philippe Cré, C-R-E-T. I quote Paul-Philippe Cré. Mr. Folger was an ideal client. His natural modesty made him refrain from assuming a specialist's knowledge of architecture. This is the dedication day of the Folger Shakespeare Library, Shakespeare's birthday, April 23rd, 1932. The Georgia marble exterior fits in with the neoclassical style on Capitol Hill. Some call this Greco Deco. Folger wanted a Renaissance exterior to the building. And Cray wrote, I quote, this would be glaringly out of key. Folger backed down. 
President and Mrs. Hoover walking up to the Folger Library for the dedication. Hoover was a book collector. He would have appreciated the gift to the nation. The First Lady invited Emily to have tea in her private quarters at the White House and watch tennis at the Chevy Chase Club. The pilot took off from the Hoover Airport, which is now national, on May 1st, 1932, one week after the dedication, and took the first aerial photograph of the Folger. Here's the Library of Congress. This is going east. This is East Capitol Street. What would this construction site be? Supreme Court. So the Folger was built before the Supreme Court was even started. Folger, Folger Library was there. And now the Folger Library has been extended. In 1980, a second reading room was put on. And other parts of the Library of Congress, the Adams is, is here right now. And the Madison is right there. And of course, all of this area, if you know it, is more concrete than, uh, than greenery. How many of you have been to the Folger Library or theater? That's a good showing. Henry instructed Cray to build a small, generic Elizabethan theater on the west side of the library. Folger made it clear to the architects that the building was primarily a library. And it didn't serve as a theater, actually, for 30 years because it didn't pass the code for the fire marshals. Actors love this space because it is so intimate. There are 260 seats. There are three plays a year. Two of them are Shakespeare. The program for the next few months uh, are Pericles and Midsummer Night's Dream. This is the Exhibition Hall, or Great Hall, an oak-paneled gallery where they have three exhibits a year open to the public for free. The Reading Room, open to registered scholars and researchers. You have to show a need to consult original sources and rare, if not unique, antiquarian volumes. Readers fill out a call slip, and staff fetch the item in an underground vault. Brought up on a dumb waiter, you look at your item, and then you give it back. I said earlier that the Folgers collected 92,000 books. That works out to six books a day that came to their doorstep. But they collected more than books. They collected over 200 paintings. They collected 250,000 playbills, mostly on Shakespeare, 60,000 drawings or engravings, maps, sculpture, furniture, porcelain, ivory, and a lot more. I took my tape measure into the vault one day. I was always accompanied when I went into the vault because I wanted to 
realize what I was getting into when I took on this project. Uh, we came up with 424 linear feet of Folger personal papers. So that's more longer than a football field. Unfortunately, I had already started my project before I took my tape measure down there. <laughs> but that's sometimes what happens. This is the founder's room. This is public space in the Folger. Emily is dressed in, as, as Portia, a costume which was worn by the American actress Julia Marlowe. And what would happen is that Henry would write to the actress and say, I would love to purchase your gown for my collection. And Emily would write to the same actress and say, I would love to know what made you become a Shakespearean actress. And usually what happened was the agent of the actress would write back and say, I'm very sorry, but Miss Marlowe does not have time to respond to your query. But Henry would get the costume because he paid for it. <laughs> Emily is wearing a lace collar. She loved lace. When she was married in 1885, her dress was all of Belgian lace. And this dress was recently donated to the library by a Folger descendant named Emily. I will attempt to convey the poignant significance of this picture. Henry never lived to see his collection together. He never saw one stone of his library. He died two weeks after the cornerstone was laid in 1930. Emily was on her own to hand over the keys of the library to the chairman of the board of Amherst trustees, whom Henry had designated in his will to administer the Folger. I admire Henry because he made it to the very top of two distinctly different areas of endeavor, the oil industry and collecting Shakespeare. I quote Henry, who explains the objective of his library. Give generations to come a better working knowledge and understanding of literary works of the 17th century. It's a great American story. My publisher, Johns Hopkins, asked me for a, an author headshot for the book jacket, and I declined. I had something better. I offered them a wall shot. I am standing between my two subjects, Henry and Emily. I am standing underneath Will and his quill. <laughs> Henry and Emily loved each other. They both loved Shakespeare. I find this the greatest menage a trois in literary history. <laughs> <laughs>